for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. This is the word from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 48 through 56, and verse 66. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. So you read that text. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And the question on everybody's minds has to be, is it real? Like, are you serious? It's interesting as Jesus shares these words, uh, the the response that we immediately get from the disciples. I mean, it's Jesus preaching the message and the response right away is, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? John chapter 6, this portion of John chapter 6 is one of those. It's like, I'm not quite sure what to do with this. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable. It's a hard teaching. Today, uh, we're going to talk about this table. Uh, Labor Day is one of those days that's kind of an off Sunday. My birthday also happens to be tomorrow, so I thought, I'm just going to preach about whatever I want to talk about on Labor Day every year. (laughs) And I wanted to talk about communion. Uh, Next week, we'll start a series out of John chapter 5 on a question Jesus asks a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, lame. He said, do you want to be well? And I think it's one of the most central questions that we're ever asked in life. But today, we're going to be talking about this table now, in thinking about Jesus' words, on the one hand, we could say, uh, you know, Jesus is, is, is just spiritualizing this message. Uh, if we go earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 people, and so these people have eaten real bread, and now they're following after Jesus, and, and they want some more of it. And Jesus, we could say, is preaching a message that's like, all of your deepest hungers are truly met in me, and in that sense, what I give you is like real food. Maybe we'd say it's a bit like the conversation he had with the woman at the well, where he said, if, if you drink the water that I give you, it will bubble up to eternal life. You'll never be thirsty again. And, and similarly, Jesus, having handed out a drink, the living water, now hands out the bread that comes from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. It says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. It's easiest to spiritualize the message that our deepest hungers are to be met in him. And I think there's truth there. We perhaps could also pick pick up like the lamb motif that's in John's gospel. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist points in Jesus and says, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. And we know in the Jewish sacrificial system that the lamb would be offered and then the priest would eat the sacrifice. And perhaps in that way, what Jesus is getting at is is that he would be eaten and his benefits would be given to his disciples. Maybe he's forecasting the sacrifice that is to come. But then, when we're most tempted to spiritualize this message, he gives us verse 55. My flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. If you know your Bible, or if you've been at our church for any length of time, we talk about John 15 quite a lot. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I was struck in studying this passage this week, the similarity of that language. I will remain in you and you will remain in me. How? If you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Jesus uses that, echoes that language of remaining again. What is going on? And why do we celebrate communion? Why is this a built-in seven to nine minutes of a service every single week? How should we think about communion? How should we receive communion? Okay, I've got a memory that I know Will Renfro will relate to, but I bet that there's a percentage of people in this room who uh, will relate to. I grew up in the Assemblies of God, which is a Pentecostal denomination. I'm very grateful. I came to know Jesus in that denomination and uh, really sparked my passion to serve Jesus in ministry. came from that tribe. The Assemblies of God have a big emphasis on speaking in tongues. And so when I was uh, growing up as an as a elementary school kid and a middle schooler and a high schooler, the highlight of summer was church camp in Turner Falls, Oklahoma. And the highlight of church camp was meeting girls. <laughs> and the second highlight of church camp was chapel. And I don't, know, I don't know if they deliberately tried to create a sweat lodge kind of situation because they had us wear closed-toed shoes and long pants and shirts that were tucked in, and it's 145 degrees in an outdoor service, and the fans there are just circulating the heat like a convection oven. It's a very uh, like dangerous environment. But the highlight of chapel, which happened every night, was altar time. Some of you will know what I mean when I say that. Others of you are like, don't get it. But after the message, we'd go down to have some kind of prayer time. Often would be like hoping that it'd be manifested with some kind of experience of the Holy Spirit. So some people might receive, uh, feel like they received a call to be a missionary or a pastor. Or some people, many people would speak in tongues or have some kind of bodily experience with the Spirit that was greater than their ability to explain it. Now, like for lots of people, and even for me, there were very real things that happened there. I was in the third grade when I felt a call to ministry at Turner Falls behind the tabernacle there for chapel. But I do remember this one, uh, this one day at chapel at church camp in Turner Falls, Oklahoma in 145 degree heat. We had gone up to the altar, and I'm looking around, and I'm watching all of my friends cry because God's doing something in their heart, or it's, they're kind of swept up in the moment, and I feel nothing at all feel nothing. It's like, hello, anybody there? And I remember thinking, if I can just watch my friends cry, then I'll start to cry, 
and then it will mean that I'm having a real experience with God. I could tell you the name of the person I was watching. I remember it vividly. But if I could just start to cry, then it would be real for me. Now, of course, I didn't have the language for this at the time, but that framework of looking for something physical, something real, kind of undergirds the language of, of the sacraments. I was beginning to think sacramentally. How many of you say, I've heard this word sacrament before? Okay, okay, a handful. Good, good, good. How many of you would feel really confident in defining it for everybody? Okay, I'm not going to pass around a microphone. The catechism of our church teaches that a sacrament is an outward and a visible sign of an inward and a spiritual grace or a blessing. God gives us the sign as a means by which we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. A sacrament is an outward and a visible sign of an inward and a spiritual grace or blessing, and it's a means of experiencing that blessing. So let me give you an example from everyday life that's a little less esoteric. Uh, when Emily and I got married, uh, June 21st, 2008, we stood in front of the church, and we were, meant to, we were told to put these rings on. And Dick Reed, who married us, said, the ring is an outward and a visible sign of an inward and a spiritual reality, signifying to everyone the joining of John and Emily through the holy covenant of marriage. So this is an outward and a visible sign of an inward reality, and it was a means of affecting that reality. In putting on that ring and exchanging those vows, Emily and I were becoming husband and wife, and we were signaling to everyone through this outward sign of the inward reality, the very real transition that had happened. You could say that reflects sacramental thinking. You've had sacramental experiences before where perhaps you were out in nature, and you were just amazed at the beauty of creation. Maybe if you've ever been up in the Tetons or if you've been to Yellowstone or maybe you've come upon the Grand Canyon and you're playing the song like the right part of the song. It's at the right moment and you go over the crest of the hill and you see this whole tableau in front of you. And you just, is this real? Is it, is it a painting? It's, it's amazing. And you feel in that moment the presence of God perhaps like you haven't before. Just in awe of God who's created all things. This outward and visible sign has produced an inward and a spiritual reality or a blessing. Uh, Thomas McKenzie in his book, The Anglican Way, said, the Lord makes himself known through his creation. This is true on a cosmic level. According to Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. But he makes himself known in small ways as well. The greatest example of God's revelation is in his incarnation in Jesus of Nazareth. When he became human, God took the material world into his divinity. He is no longer separate from his creation. And in Christ, we see that God is intimately connected with the physical world. Creation was God's first sacrament, and the incarnation of Jesus Christ was his greatest sacrament. All other sacraments flow from these two while anticipating a third, which is the return of Christ. Now, from the very beginning, the Church of Jesus Christ has understood that Jesus established two sacraments, two outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace that also serve as a means of conveying, giving us that grace or that blessing. One of those is baptism. I talked about baptism uh, early this year during the season of Epiphany. Uh, the other is communion. It's known as Lord's Supper or Eucharist. 
And Jesus says, I want you to do both of these things. Now, other churches identify different sacraments, but the universal church says these are the big two that Jesus said to do. Now, some might say, now, hold on, like, where is sacrament in the Bible? I have read my Bible, and I know the word sacrament does not show up in there. And I'll give you a clue. It's actually in there. It's right next to Trinity. So you know what page number that's on? Now, of course, I jest in saying that neither the word Trinity nor the word sacrament are found overtly in Scripture. But both of those concepts are revealed. Both of those words, Trinity and sacrament, reflect how the church of Jesus Christ, aided by the Holy Spirit and in view of all that God has read, all that God has revealed in Holy Scripture, has received and understood the God that we meet in the person of Jesus Christ and and in the apostles' teaching. They're not named, but their presence is felt. And the church reflecting on everything that's come to us in Jesus says, yes, this is right and true and good. And so though, though the word Trinity is not explicitly stated, classical Christianity would say if you do not affirm the doctrine that God is eternally three persons while also one being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity, you are outside of the bounds of classical Christianity, Orthodox Christianity. And similarly, the sacraments of baptism and communion, which were instituted by Christ, are meant to be central to the life of the church. Scripture is, of course, course our first authority, but we also ask, how has the church understood Scripture? And how has the church received the apostles' teaching? And so we have the sacraments, and so we have the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, three classical views for understanding what's going on when we receive Holy Communion. Uh, As I name these, many of you will say, yep, that's the one I'm familiar with, or that's the one I'm, like, working through right now. Uh, And and hopefully this is helpful for you. Three classical views. One of them is, we could simply say that this table is a memorial meal. A memorial meal. Uh, This is popularized or, or typified by a guy named Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli said, Christ, who gave himself once and for all upon the cross, is a sacrifice and victim, making satisfaction in eternity for the sins of all the faithful. Hence, the Mass, receiving Holy Communion, is not a sacrifice, but it's a commemoration of the sacrifice he made once for all upon the cross and is, as it were, a sign of our redemption in Christ. So Zwinglians and Anabaptists and others would agree that a sacrament, communion, is a sign, but they would not agree that it's a means, that there's any actual Holy Spirit stuff happening in it. It's a way of remembering the stuff that Jesus does, but it doesn't go beyond that. Zwingli would point to the Last Supper narratives in the gospel and and echo Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. And they're like, see, he said, just remember him while you do it. Many churches who hold this Zwinglian memorialist kind of perspective often don't really know what to do with communion. You might do it once a month in the churches or you do it once a quarter. Uh, Often they do it once a quarter because they're like, Jesus said to do it, but we don't really get the point. We know that we're supposed to do it. We eat the chiclet. We drink the little glass of grape juice, always Welch's. And we feel bad about ourselves. And that's how many people experience communion. You you eat the little snack, you drink the little juice, and you feel bad about yourself, and you try to go and do better from there. If there's an offering, it's offering ourselves to God in response to like, look what he did for us, shouldn't you try a little bit harder? Many people have that kind of perspective. 
Now, if you go to the other end of the spectrum, uh, we go to the Roman Catholic Church. And many of you know this word, the Roman Catholic view on what happens in, in the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. It's called transubstantiation in their imagination. This comes from the Catholic Catechism. It says, by the consecration of the bread and wine, that means when the priest prays over and blesses the bread and the wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance. Now, you just think it looks like bread and wine, but it is now a new thing altogether. The bread becomes the body of Christ our Lord. The whole substance of the wine becomes the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. The Zwinglians and the memorialists are over here. We're just remembering. But the Catholics will say, no, we're not just remembering. We're actually reenacting that the body and the blood of Jesus are being sacrificed again and offered to the Father again as propitiation for our sins. And so it's a really big deal who gets to receive communion because we're handing out the literal body and the literal blood of Jesus. That's the Roman Catholic perspective. If there's an offering, it's the priest offering to the Father again Jesus' sacrifice for us. Now the objection, I would say, from the Scriptures comes from uh, the book of Hebrews where we're told that when Jesus died on the cross that his offering was once and for all. It did not need to be repeated. In commenting on both of these views, the memorialist over here and the Roman Catholic over here, Dale Bruner has said, Luther and Calvin believed that both the Roman church on the right and the Zwinglian and Anabaptist churches on the left made the Lord's Supper too much a place where believers did things for God either by offering Christ to God in the Roman Catholic view or by offering their deep devotion to God in the Protestant view. The main direction of the supper in both of these views was up. There's still a sense of we're climbing the mountain to get near to God. But there's a third view where the direction is not up, but the direction is down, that God is coming to us in the Eucharist, in communion. A fancy word that could uh, explain this perspective is uh, if transubstantiation is the substance is changed, the word that we might use that re reflects our understanding of the scriptures is consubstantiation. That the spirit comes with the bread and the wine. It's a middle way. We do remember, we do tell the story again of what Jesus has done for us, but we do not only remember. And we do feast on Christ, but we aren't eating his literal body and blood. Those are at the right hand of the Father right now. But we do believe that his presence comes with the bread and the wine in a manner that's beyond our comprehension. And in speaking about such things, we're staring into mysteries. This is Thomas McKenzie again. He said, most Anglicans don't hold either one of these beliefs, the memorial meal or transubstantiation. Along with Lutherans, the Eastern Orthodox, Reformed churches, and others, we believe that the bread and wine are the body and the blood of Christ in a mysterious way. When we receive communion, we are consuming Jesus in a true but non-literal sense. The bread and wine are the outward and visible signs, and the grace is spiritual and internal. There is a supernatural transfer taking place in which God is giving us himself. 
by faith, divine life is entering our bodies and our souls. The, song that we, the last song that we sang is called Mystery. To explain the manner in which these ordinary elements be a, become a means by which we experience the presence of the risen Christ is a mystery. You could go to Paul's teaching to the church at Corinth about receiving communion. He said in, in uh, verse 15 here, he said, I speak to sensible people. This is chapter 10. Judge yourselves for what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? It's certainly more than a memorial. The word of participation is, is interactive. There's something more there. And it's not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? This is not just a cerebral exercise. Go to the next chapter, 11, 23 through 30. These words will be familiar. Paul says, For what I received from the Lord I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. It's a participation and it's a remembrance. For whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of Christ. Well, that can't be if in some way it is not the body and the blood of Christ. Verse 28, he says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning, without perceiving the presence of Christ, the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is going to get trippy. Watch this. Verse 30, That is why many of you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. That's Paul's way of saying died. There's a supernatural power at the table that supersedes a mere memorial. There's a clear theme of divine activity at the table. You're weak and you're sick because you've inadequately discerned Christ's presence at the table. Well, it sure looks like French bread from Walmart. It sure looks like off-brand Welch's. In what way could it possibly be more than just that? These are the words of Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer. Oh, the depth of love divine, the unfathomable grace. Who shall say how bread and wine God into man conveys? How's it work? I don't know. Who shall say? How the bread his flesh imparts, how the wine transmits his blood, fills his faithful people's hearts with all the life of God. But sure and real is the grace. There's something real happening. The manner be unknown. Only meet us in thy ways and perfect us in one. Let us taste the heavenly powers. Lord, we ask for nothing more. Thine to bless, tis only ours to wonder and adore. How do we explain it? I can't. Jesus knew that it was going to be difficult for us that he wasn't physically present anymore. I mean, how much better would I... I mean, think about all the dumb things pastors have... Just pastors. The dumb things pastors have done in the last 2,000 years. 
wouldn't it be great if Jesus had been physically present the whole time and staying like our one pastor and like people like me had to find other jobs? He knew it was going to be difficult for us to deal with his physical absence. One of my old seminary professors, some of you will remember Brother Bob, Bob Stamps, and uh, he used to say that faith needs something to do and faith needs something to touch. And in communion, Jesus has given something for our faith to do. It's not climbing the mountain to be close to him. It's receiving him as he comes to us. What is our faith given? What do we do with our faith? We come and we receive. And he's also given us something to touch. He's given us the bread and the wine. You remember the story of Jesus after his resurrection? He, this is in Luke's gospel. Two disciples were walking away toward a town called Emmaus, despondent and discouraged because the one they had hoped would be the Messiah of God, the, of, of Israel, had died. And that was the end of that story, just like the other would-be revolutionaries and messiahs. And Jesus came in their midst, and they walked with him, though they didn't immediately recognize him. They invited him to share a meal. It says, Luke 25, 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened. It's you. They recognized him. They discerned him in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of wine. The church has often met, many believers have often met the Lord Jesus and experienced his presence in ways that supersede explanation at the table. I was in a dark season, about five or six years, uh, to kind of the end of high school through, um, you know, a couple years into pastoral ministry, and um, trying to find my, my theological home, my spiritual home, and I studied at ORU, uh, uh, Jesus and the Gospels, one of my professors was a charismatic Roman Catholic. Those exist. And I remember I, I sat under Dr. Shelton for numerous classes. I was his, his TA for one semester. And um, I remember him giving me this alternate perspective on the Eucharist, on communion, that it's actually a charismatic act because we believe the, the real presence of the risen Christ is with us through the Holy Spirit. And I remember my heart feeling so very heavy and discouraged and hungry. Went to a chapel service where Dr. Shelton was, was serving the communion. And we read through a liturgy before, a formal liturgy, something that I'd never done before. And I did something that day that I had never done previously. Though I'd received communion once a month at least since childhood, I did something that I hadn't done before, which is I walked forward in faith that Jesus would actually meet me there. And receiving communion that day, I knelt at the altar there in the, the little side chapel by ORU, and I felt the love of God in my heart. In a way that, like, that sounds cheesy to say, it doesn't do justice to it. I felt the presence of Jesus with me. It manifested in that case in hot tears that I needed to get out. Church is like the only place I cry, and I need to cry more often. And I just felt, I felt the presence of Christ. Another time, I was a couple years into pastoral ministry. I was in the middle of seminary, and I was feeling pretty badly about myself that I'd now been like six or seven years into some kind of academic theological education, and I felt like I was professionalizing my faith. And I looked back at me as a sophomore, a junior in high school, a zealous kid, 
who had like no theological like framework, but all the heart in the world. And I was feeling like, I wish I could go back and be that person again. And at a chapel service, at Asbury Seminary, receiving communion, I said, Lord, I, I need you to speak to me. I received the bread and the wine in faith. And the Lord, I felt like the Lord said the very, very words I most needed to hear. Don't try to recreate the past. The end is better than the beginning. I was like, oh man, okay. And I went next door, and like I haven't done very many times in my life since childhood, just wept in like the fetal position on the ground, hot tears again. <laughs> that was my experience. It's not often emotional like that. But to receive communion in faith with repentance, with thanksgiving, is always worthwhile. Thomas McKenzie again. He said, I can talk about God all I want. I can read the Bible. I can listen to sermons and I can pray. All these things are right and good. But I know that I will encounter God in communion. Receiving communion doesn't mean I know more about God. It doesn't mean I have an emotional experience of God. It means that I have found Christ and he has transferred his life into me. One of the great gifts of it is the objectivity of it. I've received with thanksgiving and with faith his body and his blood. I believe he's transferred his life into me. Jesus told us he would feed us in this way, and he does. Receiving communion in the context of hearing the gospel proclaimed is the very best way to open yourself to the grace of God in your life. Why do, we, why do we receive communion? Why do we do it weekly? One is to proclaim his death until he comes. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. In receiving and serving communion every week, we're acting out the story of the gospel, the good news that Jesus, that God in Christ gave his life for the life of the world. Every time we receive communion, we remember the gospel. We remember that he loves us. We receive communion to unite and to edify the church. We we're meant to examine ourselves. We're meant to examine our relationships. And receiving communion weekly, it's meant to shape the church. And then finally, it's meant to receive his benefits. It's an outward sign of an inward grace and a means of experiencing that grace and that blessing. That's why we receive. So how should we receive communion? How should you receive communion? Three things. First, we're meant to receive communion with repentance. To repent is to have a change of heart, turning from sinfully serving myself to serving God as I follow Jesus Christ. We're meant to uh, receive with repentance, to examine ourselves. So it's really right before we come to receive to think, all right, Lord, where have I not trusted you this week? Lord, where have I willfully sinned this week in the things that I've done and not done, the things that I've said and not said? And we confess those sins to receive his forgiveness. Now we ask, where are those areas where we're not trusting you? We're giving in to fear and anxiety again. We're not surrendering ourselves to him. He invites us to examine ourselves and repent and trust him again. We're also meant to ask, am I at peace with others? You remember Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're at the altar and you're offering your gift, he's got a Jewish context in mind, but it works for communion. And there you remember that somebody has something against you, your brother or your sister has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar, but then go and be reconciled to them and then go back. So if you've got beef with someone in the church, that's theological language, if you're in conflict with someone in the church or you know they have an issue with you, it is right to go to them before you come and receive. 
as a part of receiving with repentance. The second way that we should receive communion is to receive it by faith. Coming forward, we should, be, we should believe in the Lord Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, communion is a great way to say, like, I'm in. I believe. But we should come believing that he is present with us, expecting him to be with us. Oh, the book of Hebrews, without faith it is impossible to please God. Because, oh, what is the rest of that verse? We must believe that he exists and rewards those who earnestly seek him. Thanks, Matthew. Must believe that he exists. I believe that you'll reward me as I seek you, that you want to be with me, to strengthen me, to forgive me, to encourage me, to assure me, to unite me with the church, and even to equip us to live a life where we're following him and carrying the cross. We come with faith that Jesus will give us these things. And then finally, we come with thanksgiving. It's a really appropriate response, like Susan was saying. When someone serves you the bread and wine and says, the body and the blood of Christ given for you, to say back to them, thanks be to God. It's great for that time to be a time of celebration. It is a time of reflection, but it's also a time of worship and adoration. Saying, God loved me. Yes, thank you. God's empowering me. Thank you. He hasn't forgotten me. Thank you. We receive with repentance, we receive by faith, and we, re we receive by giving thanks. If I were going to give you very practical advice, some of this may be too esoteric, perhaps for some of you, too ethereal. If I were to give you some really practical advice about how to receive communion, I would tell you, don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. But to receive this mystery by faith. It's like, I don't totally understand. You know, there are parts of that. It still looks like French bread from Walmart and off-brand Welch's grape juice to me. But I'm coming in faith, Lord Jesus, that you are present too. In fact, you are even more present than I am. I would encourage you just to come with faith and come asking him for whatever it is that you need. Confident that he's here to show up. Now, growing up as a charismatic kid, I believed that the Holy Spirit could show up anywhere. I just didn't expect it to be here. And it turns out this is one of the first and the primary places that the, the Spirit is present with the church in ordinary means of grace. So as you come, examine yourself, receive with faith, and tell Him thank you. Ultimately, the table is for people who are worn out, for people who are hungry. I love Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And the table is for those who are weary and burdened. The table is for those who only have a little bit of faith. The table is for those who feel like they're just barely hanging by a thread. The table is especially for sinners like you and me, people who need his grace conferred to us. The table is those, those who are sick and who need healing. The table is for those who are discouraged and need him to lift our heads again. There's no magic here. But in faith, we reach out for his provision and we're confident that he is with us. And above all, at the table, we remember how the Son of God gave his life for the life of the world. And this is good news. And this same Son and his glorified body is now at the right hand of the Father praying for you and praying for me. The scriptures say he lives to intercede for us. And though we don't enjoy his physical presence fully glorified right now, there will come a day again when we see him who our hearts desire and will feast in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we, we love you for giving us this physical gift. And we're sorry for complicating it. I pray that you'll be with us today with no emotional coercion, without strong-handing, without looking at someone else crying to get them to feel something. We just ask you to be with us, Jesus. I pray that you will wake up those who are bored in their faith with a word of resurrection. And those of us who are just discouraged, you'd remember, you'd remind us that you love us. I pray for the one who has a guilty conscience and feels like you couldn't love a person like them, that in receiving communion today, they would be assured of your love. Lord, we come with repentance. The psalmist said, who can discern their hidden, their own faults? Lord, reveal ways in which we need to repent and to trust you more. Give us the grace to lean into conflict in relationships and be reconciled. Help us to come with faith today. It's just a mustard seed of faith, a little bit of belief that you'll meet us and supply all, all our needs. And would you cause joy and gratitude to just well up in our hearts and may it look like worship. Oh, Jesus, we love you and honor Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.